You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. Greetings from snow-blanketed New York. Woo! So distracting and wonderful. I love it. This is episode 3.17, Time Over, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and... Thank you for all of your kind words about last week's research. I'm not sure that I could have gotten through this week's research without them. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and demanding that someone get Pudu a loving parent, a peer group, and a good therapist. Stat. I don't think they have those in Gundam. Like any of those. Judo has friends. Judo has a peer group. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 422 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Austin G. This podcast would not be possible without your support. We have a few other people to thank this week. A big MSB thank you to Panatier for the tea and the book, and to Jenny for the books. We are developing quite the little specialist library, and we love it. And a heads up for all of you that there will be no new episode two weeks from now, on Saturday, January 2nd. We will be taking that week off, and we will be back to our regular podcast release schedule the week following. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 19, Puru and Axis, or Puru to Akushisu to... For research this week, I have part two of my investigation into LP Puru's name and its unfortunate origins in the booming simulated child pornography market of the 1980s. But with that said, let's now check in on the staff at Radio Free Shangri-La. Hello, to Macaw Princeton's office. This is her assistant for Macaw, Pennsylvania speaking. I'm sorry, she's in a very important meeting slash photo shoot slash scientific experiment right now. Can I take a message? Oh, Mr. Timpson, I'm I'm so sorry I didn't recognize you because you were doing that growly conspiratorial thing with your voice. I'll go get her right away. Let me just put you on hold. One, two, three, four. Hello, Mr. Timpson. This is Tumacar Princeton speaking. It's so good to hear from you again. How are treatments going on your staff? Oh, I see. Well, you're going to have some side effects. Mm -hmm. Yes, a few unpredictable violent outbursts are to be expected. I see. Unhealthy obsessions? No, that's a normal amount of strangulations for this point in the process. What about their identities? Have you started to see any kind of fracturing into multiple personalities? 
What do you mean it's hard to tell? They're actors. You told me this is a military project. No, no, it's fine. I also lie to everyone all the time. But no wonder they cried so much during the mock combat exercise you made them do. I'm sorry, the team building, the mock combat team building you made them do. Decrease the dosage? No, I'm afraid that could be even more dangerous at this stage. You need to increase the dosage so we can get them through the dangerous early period and into the stable stage before they cause too much damage. Well, no, I've never actually gotten anyone to the stable stage, but that's only because of outside meddling from Luddites who don't understand my vision. But the theory is solid. Now, the most important thing is that you closely monitor the boundaries of their internal realities. You're going to start to get some hallucinations that they might misidentify as visions of the true nature of the cosmos, glimpses of the universality of the human spirit, or brief but perfect connections with another human being. You're going to want to shut those down right away before your test subjects start getting ideas. A good method for maintaining control is to make sure that each one has a plausible older brother type figure to fixate on. That could be hard with so many test subjects, but maybe you could reach out to the old Big Titans, Little Titans mentorship network. The other issue that you might encounter with them on both Newtipify and my own proprietary cocktail of psychotropics is some mild blurring around the boundaries of their realities. They might have trouble discerning between fiction and reality. They may even start to think that they themselves are fictional characters being observed by some outside audience. They're every word and deed the product of some script. Of course, all that can be handled with the right therapies and conditioning. What if they start blending different fictional realities? I don't think you need to be concerned about that. Nothing like that has happened in any of my test groups. Now, is that everything? Great! I'm glad I could help. Have a nice day, and don't forget to follow me on InSpaceGram for more helpful tips. <laughs> Hello, this is... Oh, good morning, Mr. G. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I'm so sorry. What can I do for you today, the G-Man? And now the recap for Puru and Axis. The space around Axis is dense with asteroids and dummies, and visibility is poor. Haman has already launched in her battleship for the assault on Earth, and hidden inside a nearby dummy, Ellen Rue monitor the Axis fleet's movements. In the Axis spaceport, Glemmy prepares his own ship for departure, but makes time to question Bichan Mondo about the object of his continued obsession, Rue Luca. They can't tell him much since they didn't get to know her well before they left the Argama, but when they mention the seeming chemistry between Rue and Judo, Glemmy blushes, gets angry, and storms off. What a moment for the double Zeta to arrive. 
Judo is not fighting his way in. He's here to defect, or to pretend to defect, so that he can get Lina back. Pudu comes bounding towards him and gives him a big hug, asking if he's come back for her. But Glemmy is distrustful, mostly because of the possibility that this Judo is involved with his beloved Rue. He orders Judo bound and locked in a cell and warns Pudu to stay away from him. After struggling with his bonds for a while, Judo is pleasantly surprised to see Pudu appear through a hatch in the ceiling, looking to free her new favorite playmate. He promises to play with her as much as she likes, and as soon as he's freed, he ties and gags her, apologizing for the necessity and hoping that if they meet again, it's in peacetime. As he disappears into the ceiling hatch, he pauses, turns back, and tells her to quit being a pilot. Judo crawls through the cramped air ducts and soon overhears the guards searching for him. His escape has been noticed. Once Pudu is discovered and freed, she decides to capture Lina and use her to hook Judo. She drags the bound and protesting Lina down the hall. Having missed Judo's arrival, Bicha and Mondo are surprised when they are marched into the hangar and ordered to paint the double Zeta in Axis colors. They immediately form a plan to take the double Zeta and use it to return to the Argama. Across the asteroid field, the Argama targets the Axis colony's engines with the Mega Particle Beam Cannon. They will reach firing range in 20 minutes. On the approach, they are spotted and attacked by Axis forces. While giving orders for the ship's defense, Bright mutters to himself that he hopes Rue, El, and Judo will return to the Argama in time. Approaching as close as possible without detection, El and Rue finally begin their attack in earnest. They bust out of the dummy asteroid, their two mobile suits riding the Mega Rider. And while Rue fires on the mobile suits nearby, El blasts open the hangar door. Their plan is simple enough. Rue will distract the guards while El searches for Judo. Judo manages to arrive at the hangar undetected, but is taken aback to find the double Zeta already in motion. Bicha and Mondo are making their escape, pursued by Glemmy in the Bawu. Glemmy naturally assumes it's Judo piloting the double Zeta, and is a bit confused when he spots Judo clinging to the outside of the mobile suit. Glemmy's attacks on both are only stopped when he is knocked back, blindsided by a massive beam attack crashing through the wall next to him. It's L on the Mega Rider. Judo takes over piloting the double Zeta, and Bicha and Mondo get into the cockpit of the Mega Rider. Quick and precise, L's shots make short work of most of the enemy mobile suits in the hangar but she struggles against Glemmy. The Bawu is just so much faster, easily dodging around her and heading straight for Judo. Except that suddenly, the dark Kubele comes between them. Pudu announces that she has come to make Judo play with her, then opens her cockpit to reveal that Lina is there with her. If you want her, come and get her, she calls, before flying into one of the colony's residential districts. Judo follows immediately behind, while El holds Glemmy at gunpoint to prevent him joining the chase. She is only able to hold him off a short while. The Bawu jumps forward, kneeing the Mark II in the face and landing on the other side. Leaving El to his subordinates, Glemmy goes after Judo and Pudu. Outside, the Argama has reached firing range, but tries to buy time while they wait for Judo, El, and Rue to get clear. Judo's chase ends when he and Pudu crash to the ground in a park right next to a playground. He does everything he can to convince Pudu to let Lina go peacefully, appealing to her desire to be a good girl, promising to play with her after, reassuring her that he likes her. But Pudu resents that he's only there for Lina and doesn't trust him. She launches the Kubele's funnels and the double Zeta dodges, 
Buildings around them are destroyed and people flung aside by the explosions. Pudu doesn't care that she's destroying Axis, and anyway, she wouldn't do these things if Judo didn't make her. Lena stops cowering from the crying Pudu and tells her that if her selfishness gets people killed, that would make Judo hate her. When this sinks in, Pudu loses control of the Kubele and the funnels fall to the ground. Before Judo can try to get Lena from the cockpit, Glemmy arrives and carries the Kubele out into space. Judo is left to chase after them. Elle spots them leaving and follows, informing the Argama that all their pilots are clear, though Lena remains missing. Bright orders all units to retreat and prepares the megaparticle beam cannon to fire. Aghast that they plan on using such a destructive weapon on a civilian population, Judo blocks the cannon with the double zeta. We are doing this to save even more people, Bright tells him, and Ru and L come up and grab the double zeta by the arms, dragging it out of the line of fire. Everything in the path of the beam is obliterated. Asteroids, dummies, mobile suits, and pilots. The blast is blinding, and when the light dissipates, Axis remains. But it's impossible to tell just how much damage the strike on the engines caused inside the colony. For their recent selfish actions, Judo, Bicha, and Mondo are locked in a cell with Chiara, and the Argama leaves the area. Twice in this episode, one character tells another character not to be a mobile suit pilot. Both times, it's men or male characters telling female characters this. And both times, it's treated as if this is somehow a choice (laughs) and has nothing to do with the situations in which the characters find themselves. There's a funny moment early in the episode when Glemmy cries out to the universe, Rue, no, don't be a pilot. Um, he's afraid that piloting coarsens you. Right, will make her vulgar. <laughs> uh, and Judo, in a much more poignant scene when he's talking to Puru and like trying to get her to stand down, tells her not to be a pilot. Even before that, when he uh, escapes, thanks to her, he says, hey, quit being a pilot, as if this 10-year-old is doing it by choice. <laughs> as if he is not also a pilot. And Puru embraces her piloting role enough, you might get the impression that she's doing it by choice. But again, she's a 10-year-old girl and she really has been coerced into doing this. Yeah, we will we will delve more into Pudu later. But you know, where the Pudu of the previous episode was, seemed happy-go-lucky, like something is not quite right there, but it wasn't as disconcerting, this episode really lays bare what's wrong with Pudu. And like you said, we'll talk about that (laughs) (laughs) more in a moment. There is a valid question about whether or not Rue has chosen to pilot. Absolutely. Really more than any other pilot, at least on the AUK side, Rue does seem to have volunteered for this. There's real joy in her when she's piloting. She gets self-realization, self-actualization from piloting the mobile suit. I don't have any particular issue there. I, the irony is just not lost on me of <laughs> Glemmy, who clearly doesn't think that piloting coarsens him, 
worrying that it will have a deleterious effect on women, and so wanting Rue to not be a pilot. Right. I mean, this is similar to old attitudes about how women shouldn't do vigorous exercise <laughs> because it will masculinize them. Shouldn't ride horses, or if they do, then they shouldn't ride astride, only <laughs> side saddle. They shouldn't ride bicycles because it will give them a sense of freedom and power. Glummy is a bit funny in this episode. We're clearly meant to be amused uh, by his total lack of professionalism. There's like no pretense <laughs> that his asking about Rue specifically has anything to do with anything other than his obsession. Right. I mean, Glummy has now fully graduated into the ranks of the Xeon commanders. He's got his own unique uniform, just like Mashima and Kiara did. And he's got his like thing, right? Each of them has this uh, over-exaggerated personality quirk that is used for humor and that makes them sort of stand out. For Mashima, it was his obsession with Haman and his old-fashioned sense of chivalrous honor. For Kiara, it was like her multiple personalities, her reluctance to pilot the mobile suit, and her just like overflowing sexuality. And Glemmy's thing is that he is a misogynist chud who wouldn't recognize a healthy relationship with a woman if it snuck up and bit him on the babu. Yeah, the idea that he feels justified in having an opinion about who Rue dates or doesn't date <laughs> because of that time that she betrayed him. <laughs> she betrayed him twice, Nina. <laughs> That's like practically going steady. This episode really highlights the degree to which Bicha and Mondo are consummate opportunists. Because when Glemmy first asks them about Rue, I don't think they realize why he's asking. However, by the time they're done talking about Rue and Judo and this and that, they are absolutely hemming it up to get to him. Oh, 100%. When Glemmy freaks out, Bicha looks at him, kind of goes, oh. And then Bicha takes the next step. Well, and, and Mondo looks startled when Glemmy first freaks out. And then he and Bicha sort of, you know, ham it up. The animation, the storyboarding in this episode is absolutely top notch. On that same thread of unprofessionalism, mm -hmm. it's strongly implied in the episode that the only reason Glemmy throws Judo in a cell is because of what Bicha and Mondo told him about Rue. Yeah, this is hysterical to me. When Judo shows up and Glem is like, you're clearly a threat to our efforts. <laughs> right. Well, and especially we've seen how little punishment there's been for Bicha and Mondo for their attempts to go back to the Argama and otherwise cause chaos. Mm -hmm. Like nothing has really happened to them. They're fine. And yet when Judo shows up claiming to be a defector... Okay, this is funny, yes, absolutely, and it's a good way to make fun of Glemmy, which we always appreciate. It's also, though, important and significant because this is the theme of the episode, selfishness. And that carries through in talking about Bichan Mondo as opportunists, because again, they come into the hangar, they were not expecting to find the double Zeta there, they did not see Judo's arrival, but their first reaction is, ah, there is our ticket to getting out of here. And to getting back into the Argama's good graces. And there's no real concern for... Like, they saved Alina before because it was convenient to do so and because they believed it necessary. With the double Zeta, they don't really need Alina, and also she doesn't happen upon them <laughs> by random happenstance. 
uh, and make it easy for them to save her. Mm -hmm. Honestly, if they went looking for Lena, they would probably get themselves into some real trouble. So I don't really have a problem with this in this case. Okay, but does the show have a problem with it? Honestly, I think the show has a problem with it because they're not good enough to pull it off. <laughs> Yet again, we have Bicha insisting on piloting. Yet again, we see him being pretty bad at it. He's like, oh no, the verniers won't work. Oh, uh, and the chase sequence in the hangar oh when the gosh. mobile suits are running. Yeah, um, he's just like not any good at it and he keeps insisting on doing it. You know, I think if they got clean away then the show might have like conflicted feelings about their actions, mm -hmm. but not purely negative ones. The fact that they are uh, incompetent opportunists, uh, I think makes the, the show more negatively disposed towards them. Yeah, like you said, selfishness runs through the whole episode and everybody is behaving selfishly. So I don't know that the show is necessarily saying that being selfish is bad, it's conflicted. I think the show is sort of saying everyone is selfish all the time, but what you do with that selfishness still matters. I can certainly see that theme showing up with certain characters and in certain scenes. I don't know that I would describe it as the, the through line for the whole episode. I guess Glemmy is behaving selfishly. Beach and Mondo are behaving selfishly. Judo is in this situation because he ran away from the Argama to go rescue his little sister, which I do think the show positions that as a selfish action. Mm -hmm. um, Puru selfishly wants Judo to play with her and complains about his selfishness in only wanting to rescue his sister. Then at the end of the episode, we get a very clear statement by Judo that Bright and the Argama are behaving selfishly. And all the major drivers of the action come from people uh, rejecting larger group needs in order to pursue their own personal ones. I can see how you come to the conclusion that that's the theme of the episode, but don't you think that really ignores Ellen Rue? And they're pretty central. They take up a lot of the narrative time of this episode. They do. They really do. And yeah, they're, they're very important and they are admittedly um, not behaving selfishly. What is so interesting about the depiction of, of Elle and Rue in this episode is they take real joy in piloting and being good at it. I also get a sense that, that that joy is meant to affirm for us that they're both improving because they both seem a little pleasantly surprised and mm -hmm. pleased by how well they do. Each of them has a line about this. It's not pure cockiness, I don't think. It's sort of like... Yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, especially for characters, you know, we saw Rue actually struggling a fair amount early on. Elle, we never really saw a struggle, but we also didn't see Elle perform at this sort of virtuoso level that she's at in this episode. The girls got moves. <laughs> I love that it's allowing them to be like really good at this thing. Well, it's allowing them to be aces. Rue has this fight sequence in space. It's wild. <laughs> I know you love this. So it's mostly reused footage, but it's like a greatest hits of all of the times that uh, Judo and the Zeta destroyed enemy mobile suits back on Shangri-La. It highlights, on the one hand, how rarely reused footage has shown up in Double Zeta so far, because it, it did stand out to me. But it also shows that Rue is like, totally on Judo's level, and even more so because she's doing them in like rapid succession like this. Right, it's one enemy after another after another come at her from different directions, and she manages to take them all out. 
I think she might be a new type. She does hear Glemmy's yell to her from across a vast amount of space. Also, Elle knows immediately when she encounters the double Zeta that Judo's not the one piloting it. Well, because the verniers aren't working. So you think that's why? You don't think it's some deeper new typey thing? You think it's just like this uh, mobile suit is being piloted badly. Therefore, (laughs) who's in there? A little from column A, a little from column B. The Mega Rider made me think of a jet ski. I was thinking like motorcycle, but jet ski works too. And I didn't actually do this, but I feel like having a character say the line, this gun can only be fired four times, really begs us to count. I did count. It is less (laughs) than four. If you're not going to make running out of ammo a plot point, I'm not sure why you put the line in there in the first place. You possibly want to emphasize why they're not using this gun just willy-nilly all over the place. Yeah. I don't know. I think there are probably other ways to do that, but... You mentioned the fighting. I thought there were some great fight scenes in this episode. A few in the fight between Glemmy and L and Judo. Glemmy high crescent kicks the double Zeta, I think. That's what it looked like to me. A flying knee also from the Bawu. Rue's uppercut, which as you mentioned was uh, reused footage, but still reads very <laughs> cool. Yeah, like I said earlier, I think the storyboarding for this episode is phenomenal. And it's most noticeable in the fights, but it's really throughout. Like there's this one bit where Judo has been crawling through the ventilation duct and he gets to the hangar and he sees the double Zeta and they do this like pan and zoom out from his face until we, the audience, can see the double Zeta. And it's as soon as the double Zeta is in frame that it takes a step forward. And it's like it's a really funny little like shock moment for the audience. Uh, And for Judo as well. The humor in this episode, for all that it is not by and large a funny episode, was, I thought, really good. Um, Judo hogtied is pretty funny. (laughs) The moment where he is stretched across the front of the camera of the Bawu is quite funny. Once he gets to the double Zeta, he appears upside down in the viewfinder, looking rather grim and ominous. (laughs) So the credits for this episode give the storyboarding credit to two different people, one of whom is Tomino himself. And I think you can see that in the um, the cut-ins that are used. Tomino loves his cut-ins, and this episode has particularly good, particularly sophisticated ones. Um, like there's one where it starts with two characters, each one totally occupying half the screen, like just their heads. It's Ellen Rue, now that I remember it. But then one of them is like, yeah, let's go. And then the two faces, like one goes up and one goes down and they expose the mobile suits behind them. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I like sketched it out in my notes and then wrote a bunch of exclamation <laughs> marks. It's real good. Uh, there's a bunch like that. So I think that's probably Tomino's influence. The other person who gets credited for storyboarding this episode is Takamatsu Shinji. And Takamatsu is going to do storyboards for a bunch of later Gundam projects. He's also going to be the director for a bunch of the SD Gundam shorts, the latter half of Gundam Wing, and all of Gundam X. This is his first episode credit for Gundam. Welcome to the team, Takamatsu Shinji. Good work. One tiny thing I noticed that I assume was a mistake, but let's see what you have to say about it. We get old model Haman in the very first scene when Haman is on her battleship and getting ready to head for Earth. Or maybe that's just the clothing she wears when she's commanding a warship. Her hair is back to the old hair design, too, though. Okay, but see, 
I think this is a gravity thing. Maybe she doesn't like the shag haircut drifting all around when she's in zero G. Maybe she puts a ton of product into it to get that like almost pyramid shaped Right, haircut. but there's no way you get those clean, precise bottom edges from that shag haircut. Like that's not, that's not how hair works, Tom. Future extensions. <laughs> Maybe it's just a wig. Maybe it has always been a wig. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Ooh, returning to the sort of art direction and storyboarding briefly, I thought it was very powerful how they used painted stills when Puru was destroying parts of that residential block. Yeah. They had animation of her attacking. And then in between those animated portions, they cut in these stills. And then there's some camera movement over the stills. I think in some of them, they zoom in or out or pan across. But it's clearly a single painted frame. I thought the whole sequence with uh, Judo and Pru arguing in the playground and then her destroying parts of the city was so powerful, so well done. Yeah, well, we really get to the, to the dark side of Puru here. She's only 10, and I am not a child development expert by any stretch of the imagination. But my read on her is that she is immature for her age, that the kinds of sort of emotional reactions and emotional regulation and thought processes that she displays here are not of a level that we generally expect of 10-year-olds. The first note that I have about her is what exactly does Puru want from Judo? Attention? I think it's much more complicated than that. That's certainly part of it. <laughs> this is me playing armchair psychologist, obviously, so take all of this with a grain of salt. But I look at Prue's reactions and see someone who has no stable, nurturing relationships in her life with adults or peers. She doesn't have a single friend. She doesn't have a parent. She doesn't have anyone. And so once she bonds with judo through their like new type connection she cannot conceive of and doesn't understand like healthy relations between people which is a big part of why we see the jealousy we see the anger i talked about immaturity part of what i mean is things like she captures lena knowing that if she has lena judo will come to them and then she's mad that he comes for lena she can't really deal with the effects of her own actions. She doesn't really understand that what she does has consequences. I think this episode hammers home a point you made last episode, which is that for Pudu, fighting and play are maybe the same, which I refined to it's play when I'm winning and fighting when I'm losing. <laughs> I think there's some truth to that. Which is, again, very childish, right? Mm -hmm. Kids have to learn how to be okay with losing. We're not naturally good at that if we're competitive. And clearly, that's not something anybody is trying to teach Puru. I also think for Puru, there is this desire for exclusivity. She wants to be the only important person for Judo. She wants to be uh, the most important person, and she can't conceive of a situation in which he both loves and spends time with Lena, but is also a part of her life. Right. She doesn't understand that a person can love multiple people and care about multiple people and be friends with multiple different people because nobody loves or cares about or is friends with her. And she doesn't love or care about or be friends with anyone except for this like new, very intense feeling that she has for Judo. 
even if she could intellectually recognize that he could both have a relationship with his sister and also be her friend, I think the fear for her is she'll be abandoned. That whatever this thing is she has with judo, it will just disappear the moment he has Lena back. You know, with the added layer that she doesn't really understand the difference between wanting what Lena has, which is to say a sibling who cares about and loves you and looks after you and would do anything for you versus wanting literally who Lena has, (laughs) which is judo. Yeah. And here again, we have a connection back to Glemmy because Glemmy's whole thing at the start of this episode is his jealousy of judo and of the relationships that judo is forming with people. Like Pudu, Glemmy is horrified by the notion that the person he wants to want him might, in fact, like somebody else. Judo tries a few different tactics with Pudu, which I think is very smart. He appeals to her possible sense of wanting to be a good girl. You know, he brings up the danger to the people around them. But it is Lena who realizes that she has to make a selfish appeal to Pudu. It's no good appealing to all of these people around her who Pudu lacks empathy for and doesn't relate to in any way. She has to tell Pudu, if you act selfishly and hurt all these people, then my brother, Judo, won't like you. In fact, he will hate you. And the idea that her actions might cause Judo to hate her is the only thing that stops Pudu. I think Judo makes a classic mistake here when he says, this is your city, this is where you grew up, don't you care about it? I'm not sure that this is where she grew up. I don't think she does care about it. Pudu is is many things, but she is also very lacking in empathy, and I think most of her behavior shows that. Again, empathy being something that tends to develop somewhat earlier than this. I think Judo, being a good boy who doesn't know that he's a good boy, tends to assume that other people are more good than they are. The one thing Judo doesn't say to Pudu that I sort of wish he did, although it opens such a delightful can of story worms is he does not offer to bring her with them. Yeah, and I wonder if that's because he still wants her to stop piloting. Like, he can't reconcile himself to the idea of drawing her further into this war. Which is silly, right? Obviously, she's already involved. She's already an enemy pilot. Leaving her on Axis is not going to help her. Absolutely not. And would AU use her as a pilot? That's a whole nother question. I mean, surely not. They're supposed to be the good guys. She would be the youngest one that they have purposefully conscripted. But given what a powerful new type she is, and given what we see of, of certain moral compromises later in the episode, uh, do we really think they would let such an asset sit unutilized? I was also struck by the moment in which Puru tells Judo, you're making me do this which we have heard from other Gundam characters in the past, (laughs) although it certainly plays better coming from a child. Yeah. I liked that they set this in a playground because it's a scene of normal childhood that is then interrupted by the imposition of these mobile suits. And isn't that such a good metaphor for Judo and Lena and Puru and the kids in the playground also? All of them are children whose lives have been interrupted by the imposition of these mobile suits. Counterpoint, those kids are all fascinated by these mobile suits, and a bunch of the kids come up to look at them and even know what types some of them are. 
They are entranced. They are into it. I don't think that's a counterpoint. <laughs> I think that's part of the point. Yeah. Well, and, and the meta commentary about the show itself, right? Yeah. All of these kids love these mobile suits, do not recognize the danger that they represent. Also, who is absent from this scene? The parents. Like, I know 1986 was different, but no playground today would have that many kids and no parents. There were a few parents in other scenes of the playground, but it's true. The scene where we see a group of kids standing at the base of the Kubelet is just kids. There, there aren't any parents within that frame. The scene where Judo almost gets Lena back is really the like apotheosis of Puru wanting to replace Lena because they are just about to be reunited. They are almost about to be hugging again when Puru yells no and interposes herself. If they are reunited, then she cannot take Lena's place. And she has gone full new type demon mode in a way that we saw Four do. And I think we saw Haman do at one point, but just like radiating power, her hair streaming, her eyes glowing. It's so shocking and so frightening that Lena cowers into the back of the cockpit and it's not until later that she summons up the courage to try to get Pudu to stop attacking. You know what they say, Tom. What, what do they say, Nina? You either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. Do you think somebody became the villain in this episode? Do I ever. A couple of questions that I have, though. I would think that if you targeted the engines of a colony, you would risk blowing up the whole colony because of the power sources, because of the machinery. I think the implication in the episode is that you're right about that. That is a serious risk. And so when Judo is like, you might destroy a colony, you might kill all those people. And Bright says, we know about the people, but we're willing to risk their lives to save more lives later. The context of that is that while Bright is not trying to hit the residential block, he nonetheless knows that that is a possibility. I do think that's slightly different. There is a difference between directly targeting a civilian population versus a target that puts a civilian population at risk, but is like adjacent. I... I know these are shades of gray here. The show draws the very clear parallel to the colony gassing incidents by the Titans. In fact, uh, Bright uses the exact same words to justify this action as Bascom does when speaking to Rekawa after she joins the Titans. Jared uses similar language to justify similar actions earlier in the show. And after the gassing, Rekua says, like, that's it for me. I can never go back to the Argama. Gundam has made very clear that it considers this kind of action to be the moral event horizon, the point beyond which you can't go back. Whatever your personal opinions about these sorts of things, Gundam has been very clear. And the episode makes a point of showing us the colony afterwards, after the light clears, right? Because the light of the mega particle beam cannon is completely blinding. And the colony appears to be intact, but we don't know what's going on inside. We have no clue about the internal damage to that place. The bridge crew and Bright comment on the fact that, you know, it looks like the residential area is undamaged, but there's uncertainty in their voices. They don't know, and they're aware that they don't know. Yeah, I thought it was a great touch. There's a real sense of, like, horror in Torres's voice right after they do the firing. 
And for Bright, this is like a difficult decision. We see him struggle with it and then ultimately make the call. But I think the show is distinctly on Judo's side in this. They are supposed to be the good guys, and this is not what the good guys do. And Alan Ruse lines here as they drag him away parrot many of the justifications that we hear on the regular for these kind of actions. This is a war. We're following orders, you know. <laughs> yeah, and that's where they leave us at the end of the episode. Bright tells Judo that his actions were selfish, and Judo responds like you adults weren't being selfish. And then they close the door of the brig, and then we have a sort of surprisingly long transition into the credits. This is the end of the uh, four-episode run written by Endo, and it feels like the end of one act of the story. Two quick, interesting visual notes. First, when Judo puts the tape over Puru's mouth when he uh, ties her up and leaves her in the cell, at first I was like, where would Judo get tape, right? Because he didn't have any tape on him when they trussed him up and threw him in there. But I think it's the same kind of patches that we saw pilots in Zeta use to fix small tears in their suits. So I bet everybody just carries some of that stuff around with them. That would make sense. Second, uh, Puru is wearing a single red fingerless glove on her left hand. Yes, she is. (laughs) And that's a look. (laughs) Iconic. At first, I would just say, that's a look. But here's a weird coincidence. The Gallus J mobile suit that Mashima used early in the show also has one red hand. And I think it's the same one. I think it's the left hand in both cases. And maybe that's just a coincidence, but maybe there's something going on there. What is the significance of one left red hand? Let us know, listeners. Why is Puru and the Gallus J wearing one red glove? And now, part two of the research on L.P. Puru's name. Last week, we discussed the history of, quote, lowly con anime and manga, the genre of simulated child pornography that rose to relative prominence in Japan at the end of the 1970s and became so dominant during the 1980s that its gravity warped the anime and manga industries as a whole before a string of grisly murders triggered a public backlash at the start of the 1990s. More specifically, I explained how Erpi Pru's name matches the shorthand for the child porn manga magazine Lemon People, aka Erpi Pru. This week, I want to look forward to the status of child pornography, both simulated and real, in modern day Japan. I'll talk about legal efforts to ban simulated child porn and the stumbling blocks that those efforts have encountered in Japan and in the United States as well as the theories that try to explain the extraordinary proliferation of child pornography since it first attracted attention in the 1970s. So that's my statement of intent, and it's also your content warning for this week. We will be talking once again about the sexual abuse and exploitation of children and the depiction of those acts, as well as what is, or in some cases isn't, being done to stop it. And a further warning, This is going to be a long one, but I I promise that next week we will talk about something else. 
Because we're going to be talking about legal theories around child pornography this week, I need to give you one further disclaimer here at the beginning. Any legal discussion is necessarily going to be coming from the U.S. perspective. I've done my research on the relevant Japanese legal frameworks, and in most of the crucial ways, they do resemble those applicable in the U.S. But I am not qualified as a Japanese lawyer. And while I did train and practice as a lawyer in the U.S., I retired from that profession years ago. None of what I'm going to say should be interpreted as legal advice, and that's for your own good as well as mine. But with that out of the way, last week I was able to identify the first works of amateur pornographic manga featuring children that were published in Japan, and I traced how they kicked off a decade-long boom during which similar works rapidly proliferated. From a modern perspective, it's actually kind of shocking that scholars have been able to single out an identifiable beginning to the trend, because Today, the anime and manga industries are awash in simulated child porn, and the influence of so-called lowly con can be seen everywhere. But of course, that's not exclusive to anime and manga. Child pornography in general has been on the rise everywhere. Sexualized depictions of children in mainstream media have only become more common with time. Solid statistics on child pornography or simulated child pornography are hard to come by. It's necessarily an industry of underground networks, and most of the people participating want to conceal their involvement. It's also understudied by scholars, partly because the subject matter is more repulsive than fascinating. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, we have a collective fear in our society of the lurking pedophile, who hides their desires behind a mask of respectability, but is only waiting for an opportunity to strike. High-profile cases of rampant sexual abuse within hallowed institutions of our societies and the cover-ups have exacerbated those fears. Who is more suspect now than the Boy Scout troop leader, the high school football coach, the youth minister, or the Catholic priest? And if we can't trust them, can we really trust these so-called researchers claiming to study child pornography? Why are they so interested in studying it, huh? What are they trying to prove, anyway? So, partly as a result of this culture of paranoia, there are large gaps in what we can say we know about the prevalence and the effects of child porn. Not having answers in many ways leaves us grasping in the dark for solutions to problems that we don't really understand. For example, perhaps the single most essential question to ask as we try to grapple with child pornography is, does exposure to child porn increase the likelihood that a person will sexually abuse a child? But the answer is, we don't know. Experts studying the issue have come back with every possible answer. And we have even less data when it comes to simulated child pornography. So instead of data, we're going to look at theory. In researching this, I encountered two major models which try to explain this trend. For my convenience, when I refer to them later, I'm going to call them the technology model and the consumer model. These aren't like official names. Don't go around saying them and expecting people to know what you're talking about. The technology model is the simple one. This model says that child pornography has proliferated because the technology necessary to secretly produce and distribute it has grown increasingly accessible. In the old days, a lot of child pornography arrests happened when an employee at a commercial Photoshop noticed something untoward while developing a customer's film. Video cameras and VHS tapes were expensive and difficult to transport, and distribution had to be done in person or through the mail methods that made it easy for investigators to identify and prosecute distributors. The internet and ubiquitous digital recording technology have changed all that. 
This is also true for simulated child porn. Digital art tools and internet distribution mean that a manga author drawing child porn need no longer find an accommodating publisher or go through the laborious process of self-publishing a paper manga to sell at Comicat. This has jurisdictional consequences too. Tokyo, for example, does have a local law that allows city authorities to regulate some kinds of particularly bad manga, but it only applies to manga that is being sold physically on paper in Tokyo. The technology model is definitely true, but it's also limited because it takes for granted the existence of the market for child porn, and it only seeks to explain its growth. It doesn't interrogate the conditions that create and sustain that market. It imagines a binary opposition between children who need to be protected and child abusers who need to be discovered and punished. It doesn't address or even acknowledge the ways that the larger society contributes to the epidemic of child exploitation or recognize just how porous the barrier between legal, everyday sexualization of children in the mass media and illegal child pornography really is. For that, we need to look to the consumer model. The consumer model posits that child pornography and the aggressive sexualization of children in mass media are actually both the logical results of market forces in a consumer capitalist society. One way companies can increase sales and thus profits is by cultivating new markets for existing products. This can mean transporting your goods to a literal new market like another city or another country, but it can also mean using marketing to convert a group that doesn't want your product into one that does. Think about all those absurdly over-the-top masculinized brands that are designed to make men want to spend money on products that are traditionally marketed to women, like skincare. Children as a class, don't really consume much beyond what they need. But adult sexuality in modern society, especially for women, requires a vast array of consumer goods, ranging from clothes, which must be purchased and discarded constantly in order to keep up with the tireless fashion cycle, and which may need to be replaced all at once in the event that the person gains or loses any significant amount of weight, uh, cosmetics, skincare, hair care, accessories, jewelry, knowledge, which may be purchased via dedicated magazines, and of course there are whole sectors of the economy that thrive on the money spent on dating. To give a hypothetical example, if you owned a lingerie brand and you wanted more customers, you might invest some of your marketing dollars in convincing teenagers that a person at their age really ought to be wearing underwear worth showing off. Yeah, totally hypothetical example. I can't... <laughs> I. I definitely cannot think of exactly the company you are probably talking about right this moment. I mean, actually, when I was writing this, I was thinking about making it a little more obvious which company I was talking about, but I couldn't decide on which one I wanted to put on blast because there are just so many. <laughs> the one that pops to my mind is Victoria's Secret's entire pink line, which I think came out when I was a teenager, which was all like slightly younger, you know, sweats and cute bras and cute underwear marketed at teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there's plenty of others. And there's tons of uh, clothing brands already marketed at teenagers that have decided to start their own sort of side lingerie brands, like American Eagles Airy or whatever American Apparel is doing. Do they exist anymore? I think they... I look. I don't know. We're aging. <laughs> we're aging ourselves a little bit yeah. right now. But they were particularly bad back in the day. 
This impulse to turn kids into adult-like consumers as soon as possible results in what marketers call age compression, or kids getting older, younger. The boundary line between child and adult gets eroded. And a second way to increase sales is to introduce a new product to an existing market. As age compression takes hold of some children and their behavior begins to transgress the bounds of what society expects from kids their age, they become a spectacle. Society at large is fascinated by this adult imitating behavior. The attention that they attract makes them into a valuable commodity, a new product, and a lucrative part of the media's offerings. Once this has taken hold, the market requires increasingly extreme transgressions, lest any particular subject become normalized and thus lose its spectacular status. This creates an incentive for converting ever younger children to ever more extreme versions of adult behavior. And these transgressions may be real, or they may just be shocking myths that are created to attract attention. But even the myths change the societal expectations for kids over time. You and I were just talking about this recently, but when you talk about myths that involve transgressive behavior for children, I think about the the whole myth about the like jelly bracelets, I think. There was this moral panic for a while that kids were using the jelly bracelets to symbolize sex acts that they had like done with other kids. And the kids were having parties where they were like swapping and earning these bracelets by doing all kinds of sexual activity that we do not expect of, say, 11 and 12 year olds. Right. I mean, these moral panics happen like every couple of years. They're incredibly common. I think when we were that age, there were, you know, four or five or six of them that I can remember just during the time that we were in middle school. Right. And and while I certainly never knew anyone <laughs> who used those jelly bracelets in that in that way, is it possible that somebody was? Yeah, it's it's possible. Was it as prevalent as society feared? I think not, given that I was around the right age and had never heard anything about it until it popped up on the news. Yeah, this is a, a little bit of a digression, but it's also somewhat related. In the 90s in Japan, there was this huge and really long enduring, it's still around today, moral panic over what they called compensated dating, which was high school girls accepting money to go on dates with older men and maybe have sex with them as well. To this day, no one actually knows how common this was, but uh, it inspired a huge moral panic and that there's a bunch of legislation around it and, and a bunch has been written about it. And it's a very similar thing. Right. And, and to the point that you were making, whether it's really happening or not, the media makes money off of the specter of it, off of the idea that it's occurring. It creates so much outrage. And we've seen, you know, this year, uh, this past few years, how much outrage fuels a news cycle. Uh, that, that that outrage, that fear of what young kids are doing is itself a product. Yeah, and another thing we've talked about a lot in recent years is normalization. So at first, this is an outrage, but over time, it turns into a normal expectation. First, you think, oh my God, teenage girls are going on compensated dates. But then you start to think, yeah, teenage girls go on compensated dates and it becomes normal. 
And that expectation percolates throughout society and it affects what people expect from kids and it affects what kids think is normal for themselves, for people their age. So one point that I saw brought up recently that was more on the sexualization side, but you know, as you've pointed out, the barrier between quote unquote just sexualization versus pornography is porous, but that it, when it's omnipresent, it creates in young people, it creates in children an expectation that it's normal and permissible because it's everywhere. And it, it wouldn't be everywhere if it weren't normal, right? Yeah. And we tend to think and talk about this in terms of the mass media, but there's no real reason to think that the social and the market forces that drive the commoditization of lurid child sexuality in the mass media don't also apply to explicit child pornography. There isn't like a barrier there. Creating a class of consumers that are accustomed to fixating on transgressive images of children, imitating aspects of adult sexuality, naturally also encourages uh, children to find those behaviors normal, and it creates this parallel class of consumers who want more. The technology model tends to be cited by legislators and law enforcement. And a cynical person might suppose that that is because it justifies ever larger law enforcement budgets and ever more draconian laws in order to fight against ever more sophisticated child exploitation networks, but without requiring any major changes to the status quo. The consumer model then tends to be favored by media and culture critics who have plenty of other grievances about the status quo in modern consumer capitalism. And of course, the two are not actually incompatible. They're probably both true, and efforts that focus exclusively on one or the other are unlikely to ever end this dark and deeply harmful part of our global culture. Speaking of things that haven't been able to end this dark and deeply harmful part of our global culture, let's now talk about the efforts that Japan and the United States have made to prohibit child pornography in general and simulated child porn in specific. In fan communities outside Japan, there is a tendency to attach a special significance to the loan word rorikon and its anglicized equivalent lolikon, usually because the foreignness allows those who are drawn to simulated child pornography to skirt around the implications of more loaded English equivalents like pedophilia, hebophilia, child pornography, or child sexual abuse. You may encounter claims that lolikon has a deeper meaning, and that it specifically describes only the attraction to drawn, fictional depictions of young girls. But as we saw last week, that is self-serving nonsense. Lolicon is just a slang term for an adult with a sexual interest in girls around the age of puberty, and it can also be used to describe that unhealthy interest. In Japan today, the term Rorikan carries major social stigma and the vast Rorikan industry is viewed by many as a lurking threat to Japan's image. And that image is very important to Japan. In recent decades, Japan's government and business institutions have collaborated on a range of initiatives consciously designed to make Japan seem cool to foreign audiences. The ultimate aim is to create a lucrative and influential group of Japan fans around the world, much of that focus on Japanese cool has revolved around its artistic cultural products. Its domestic film, video game, comic, and animation industries have been promoted abroad at public expense. And 
since you're currently listening to a weekly podcast all about a Japanese cartoon franchise and the culture that formed it, I don't need to tell you that Cool Japan has been pretty successful. You can imagine the dilemma that this has created for Japanese policymakers. The whole world loves manga, Japan's extraordinary cultural product. Ooh, we regret to inform you that manga is rife with child pornography. One result of this dilemma has been legislative efforts to ban child pornography, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But another result has been a widespread culture of silence around Rorikan as an aspect of Japanese society. Despite the size and influence of the industry both historically and today, and its lurid, attention-grabbing nature, simulated child pornography remains a rarely discussed, rarely studied subject. One researcher in Japan described his decision to publish an article on the subject as tantamount to career suicide. Perhaps this culture of silence may be read as a collective effort to avoid rocking the boat so that the nation can continue to enjoy the commercial benefits of a lucrative simulated child porn industry while avoiding the damage to its national image that would inevitably result if too much attention were ever directed towards it. But on the other hand, maybe it's a way of coping with a status quo that most people find abhorrent, but which they are simultaneously unable to change. Surveys of the Japanese public have found staggering levels of support for stricter laws against child porn. In one survey, 91% of respondents wanted stricter laws, and 86% wanted anime and manga child porn to be treated the same as the kind with real kids in it. Yet despite so much support, Japan has dragged its heels on legal reform. The first national law banning production and distribution of real child pornography didn't pass the diet until 1999. For context, the U.S. enacted an equivalent national law 21 years earlier, in 1978. I tell you this not to suggest that the U.S. is some kind of shining beacon of morality on the subject, it isn't, or to imply that Japan is uniquely bad, that's not true either, although it has functioned for decades as an international hub of child pornography trafficking, so it's fair to say that it is actually pretty bad. The 1999 statute in Japan created a significant loophole. It didn't ban what is called simple possession, i.e. possession of child pornography for personal use, without intent to distribute. It also failed to address developing technologies like the internet. And again, this is 1999, the internet existed. In 2012, more than a decade later, some localities, Kyoto and Nara, passed a ban on simple possession. Then in 2014, the National Diet amended the 1999 law to ban simple possession, and it was under this 2014 law that Ruroni Kenshin manga creator Watsuki, remember him from last week, was prosecuted after he was caught buying child porn. Watsuki's case, however, also reveals the limitations of the 2014 law. The penalties, both on paper and in practice, are light. Watsuki was arrested in November 2017. In February 2018, he pled guilty to the charges, and he paid a fine of 200,000 yen, less than $2,000. His manga, which had been placed on hiatus when he was arrested, returned to the pages of Shonen Jump a mere four months after he pled guilty. And the magazine actually issued a deep apology for the hiatus. A side note, while I'm calling it the 2014 law, it did not go into force until 2015, a year after it was passed, in order to give anyone who was holding the newly prohibited child pornography a chance to destroy it. 
The legal status of simulated, that's drawn or animated child porn, is more complicated, and efforts to regulate or ban it have encountered significant difficulties both in Japan and around the world. Some nations, like Canada and Australia, have created statutory bans on child porn that expressly encompass depictions of fictional children. But in the U.S., a law like that was struck down by the Supreme Court on freedom of speech grounds. And in Japan, the 2014 law left simulated child pornography entirely unregulated. In fact, the 2014 law only passed after a provision that would have required the government to study, just study, the issue of simulated child pornography was stripped from the bill. As I mentioned at the top of this piece, the parallel efforts to ban simulated child pornography in both the US and Japan have plenty in common. And more than just parallels, there are crucial intersections. One of the most important cases in the US was about imported lolicon manga. And of course, Japan's legal framework is dictated by the nation's constitution, which was mostly drafted by American legal experts during the post-war occupation. Both countries, like most democracies, have constitutional provisions that guarantee to their citizens the rights to speak and express themselves free from government interference. In the United States, this right is embodied in the First Amendment to the Constitution, which reads in relevant part, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Likewise, Article 21 of the Japanese Constitution provides, quote, freedom of assembly and association, as well as speech, press, and all other forms of expression, are guaranteed. No censorship shall be maintained, nor shall the secrecy of any means of communication be violated. It is these rights that have, historically, stymied efforts to regulate simulated child pornography. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you know that I love a good digression. But this is probably not the best time for me to go into the history and theory behind why we protect free speech so zealously. Suffice it to say that a functioning democracy requires free speech protections. It is by speaking that people can advocate for change and build coalitions with enough members to change government policy through elections. And people speak in this way through all kinds of different methods. Things like political speeches or political op-eds in newspapers are obvious examples. But people who want to express their views and advocate for a better world might do so through art or music, literature, dance, internet memes. Why, they could even make podcasts. It's important to keep the definitions of what constitutes speech nice and broad, because the power to define what speech gets protection and what doesn't is just the power to regulate speech with extra steps. And this is especially important because the groups of people who are on the periphery of society, including persecuted minorities and those living in poverty, are also systematically excluded from the kinds of speech most likely to be deemed worthy by regulators. A regime that protected speech in the op-ed sections of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, but not on Twitter, would necessarily exclude the voices of the people who have the most serious grievances. You may not accept this premise. As we discussed a few episodes back in our chat with anthropology consultant Ali, the European liberal democratic idea of human rights from which these ideas about free speech are derived is not universal. But Japan and the United States both have accepted this premise, and so even things like pornography are considered protected speech. But if you go to the U.S. Department of Justice's Citizen's Guide to U.S. Federal Law on Child Pornography, 
the very first sentence in the guide reads, Images of child pornography are not protected under First Amendment rights and are illegal contraband under federal law. And Japan's Article 21 has not prevented Japan from enforcing the 2014 law. But why? Rights, even constitutionally guaranteed ones, aren't absolute. Despite our skepticism of any regulations purporting to restrict speech, we still have to balance the importance of protecting certain types of speech against the harm that they can cause. That's why you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, unless there really is a fire. You could cause a panic. People could get hurt fighting for the exits. Their rights to physical safety outweigh your right to shout whatever you like wherever you want. Slander, likewise, can be banned because the damage it causes outweighs your right to tell lies about somebody. Under U.S. law, the government has the power to criminalize child pornography depicting real children in order to prevent the inherent harm to the child, first when the content is created, then the recurring harm whenever the content is viewed, and the enduring harm for so long as it exists. Likewise, Article 1 of Japan's 2014 law states that the purpose of the act is to protect the rights of children and prevent them from suffering the physical and the psychological traumas inherent in sexual abuse. So everyone agrees that the state has a compelling interest in protecting children by prosecuting those who promote their sexual exploitation. In other words, whatever hypothetical value child pornography has as speech is totally outweighed by the harm done to the child, the ongoing harm caused by the record of the violation, and the risk of future harm to other children if the criminals are not prosecuted. But those justifications all revolve around the real child, with legally recognized rights that need to be protected. What if the child is entirely fictional, nothing more than lines on paper conveying the idea of a sexually abused child? Or to complicate things further, what if the fictional character looks and behaves like a child, but the author claims that they are, in fact, of age. Instead of pointing to a specific, definite, and unambiguous harm to a particular child, we have to ask, is a particular work containing simulated child pornography so objectionable, so gross, so unhealthy, so contrary to the moral standards of the community, and so utterly lacking in literary, artistic, political, or scientific value, that we can justify excluding it from the protections that are otherwise guaranteed to free expression. Legal scholars in the audience might recognize that question I just laid out as a loose approximation of the standard used in the United States to determine whether a work is obscene. Obscenity, and that's the technical term, is another carve-out from free speech protections that allows governments to regulate otherwise protected speech if it's contrary to the public morals of the community. Both the U.S. and Japan have laws banning obscenity, and it is under these laws that simulated child pornography may be criminalized. In 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a law which prohibited, quote, any visual depiction, including any photograph, film, video, picture, or computer or computer-generated image or picture that is, or appears to be, that's the key word, appears to be, of a minor engaging in a sexually explicit conduct. In other words, this was a law that banned child pornography and simulated child pornography alike. The Supreme Court held that while Congress had the power to ban child pornography depicting real children in order to protect their rights, as we discussed earlier, 
and likewise that it had the long recognized power to ban obscenity, it did not have the power to ban visual depictions that appeared to be of minors engaging in sexually explicit conduct unless they qualified as obscene. In reaching this conclusion, the court pointed to performances of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, as well as recent Academy Award-winning movies like American Beauty. Under the law as written, owning a VHS copy of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet could mean up to five years in jail. Because Juliet is, what, 15, canonically? Uh, and Romeo is like 16. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're both underage in the text as written. And so any performance of Romeo and Juliet or any recording of it would count as a visual depiction that appears to show minors engaging in sexual conduct. Obscenity is a touchy subject in the law because all the reasons why we're hesitant to let the government regulate speech in the first place also apply to letting them define what is or isn't obscene, what speech is harmful, and what does or doesn't have value. You can't really write a set of timeless and universally applicable standards for what is or isn't obscene. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously once said, I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material that I understand to be embraced within the term obscenity, and perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so, but I know it when I see it. So when a lawsuit is brought, courts and juries evaluate controversial works individually, and they approach assertions of obscenity with a skeptical eye. The test is both complex and vague, but here's a good shorthand. Is the work as a whole super gross, according to the contemporary moral standards of the relevant community? And does the work as a whole have no serious redeeming value? In 2006, an Iowa man was charged with possession of obscene materials after he imported a package of manga, including issues from the anthology Comic L.O., which is short for Lolita Only. And as the name implies, it features pornographic depictions of minors. Rather than try to argue the serious artistic merits of his imported hentai in front of an Iowa jury, risking 15 years in prison and a quarter million dollar fine if he lost, he pled guilty and got a six-month prison term. The presumption since then has been that so-called Lolicon manga or anime is obscene, and possession is illegal in the United States. Or at least in Iowa. Interestingly, Japan had a parallel case just the following year. In the Mishitsu trial, Japan's first obscenity case to involve manga, the Japanese government prosecuted a manga author and two executives from publisher Shobunkan over a pornographic manga anthology that was eventually determined to be obscene. But while the Mishitsu case established a precedent for finding manga obscene, that case turned on issues of sexual violence and, more importantly, on the detailed and insufficiently censored depictions of sex organs. So while there is a precedent for applying obscenity law to manga, it has done little to curb the production of lowly type simulated child pornography. I couldn't find solid numbers for manga, but at least according to one source, about half of all animated porn in Japan depicts schoolgirl-type characters. And just like in the United States, the sexualization of minors is in no way limited to explicit pornography. The culture is inundated in it. LP Pru represents the first time that we've really noticed one of its tendrils infiltrating Gundam, but 
I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this will not be the last time we reckon with the specter of Lolicon. Next time on episode 3.18, Furusato, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 20 and Double Date? Bright earns back some points. A reminder that Ayug sucks. Bichan Mondo's time on the Andra proves useful. Just a normal person trying to escape the war. That taste of your own medicine, a taste of your own medicine, it's time you had a taste of your own medicine. And the one thing a tyrannical manager like Wang Li truly fears, a unionized workforce. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, instrumental, by Spinning Merkaba. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Prepare for trouble! And make it double! To protect space noids from devastation. To unite all people within Lady Haman's nation. To denounce the evils of truth and love. To extend our reach to the stars above. Kiara. Mashima. Team Neozeon blasts off at the speed of light. Surrender now or prepare to fight. Gotten. That's right. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes from Hit the Targets. Thanks, Hit the Targets. And thank you for listening. I find your comment specious. <laughs> Good word. I won't include it because you managed to get one up on me. Whoop, whoop. Pull over that podcast too good. <laughs> We still have to do the wrong gun of opinion. I know. I don't know why I took my headset off. I know we're not done. Wish, wishful thinking. I don't get the impression that Neo Zeon gives so much of a thing about the Earth's sphere. No. Except as like a point of control. No. <laughs> I was thinking about changing it from to extend our reach to the stars below, to the stars above, to the Earth below. But then I would have to change the prior line, and that's more work than I want to put into this. And poo. You make a strong case.
actually think it's I have, I have a more sophisticated idea than that okay. it's coming to me slowly but well, I will give you attention and you can respond to it and okay. I can follow up So I think we should do a transition and then talk about the canon and then I can talk about the, um, the visual notes at the end. Okay. I think it was white and rhinestone in studded. In okay. studded, that's not a word. <laughs> I'm sure there will be times when you will have comments that you will want to offer and I encourage you to do so. Okay. So that I can then go and try to think of how to Resume my flow. <laughs> yeah, so I can disrupt your carefully written <laughs> essay. Oh, 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 oh. I think you mean rapidly banged out. Oh yeah, rapid. It only took what three weeks. <laughs> I actually have the word proliferation a lot in this piece, so it's a little Uh-oh. it's a little ominous that I stumbled over it like that <laughs> so early on. Results in what marketers call. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's what marketers call it. They call it. <clears throat> yeah, your comment led right into my next paragraph. Hey, we're back on track. It is these rights. It is it is re, it is rights. <laughs> this only occurred to me with Pudu, but uh, didn't Michael Jackson have a look where he wore a single? Glove. He did. I think it was white and studded with rhinestones. Maybe I'm thinking of a pair of red gloves and mixing it up with the single glove. Because I feel like there were also some red gloves at one mm. point. I don't know. 